8. And this morning, uh, we have the privilege of having Dr. Paul Tripp come preach God's word for us a brother and pastor who's blessed our church through many ways, through his writings, through various other means as well. So we're thankful to have him preach God's word. But more importantly, a dear friend and brother to our pastor, Bill Smith, throughout these years. So we're excited and we're thankful uh, for the preaching of God's word this morning through Dr. Paul Tripp. Our verses are 6 through 8, and I will read that for us in the ESV. This is God's word. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow myself before God on high? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, to walk humbly with your God? Well, it is a distinct honor for me to be here this morning and to be part of this wonderful occasion. I won't reveal how long I've known Bill, but uh, he had more hair. <laughs> In fact, there was a day when my wife Luella used to cut his hair. That's not needed anymore. Uh, the other thing I would say is you can pray for me. This is a very small platform, and I'm a peripatetic preacher. That means I walk around a lot. So at some point, I may disappear. <laughs> right in the middle of my sermon, uh, so you can be praying for that. I was a young and massively discouraged pastor and just a few years ago. That was a joke. <laughs> Obviously not a very good one. Uh, I was beaten up and discouraged. I felt if I heard one more person criticize my preaching or my pastoring, I was going to shoot myself. And all I could think about was running. I just wanted to run. I couldn't imagine being a pastor any longer. I couldn't imagine preaching to those critical faces in front of me. I just wanted to run. And I found a... Uh, job in Southern California as a principal of Christian school. I thought, Jesus and the beach, that's a calling. And I went to my elders and I said, I'm done. I can't do this anymore. And they said, Paul, we don't want you to leave. I said, I can't, I, I can't do this. There's nothing left inside of me. I can't do this anymore. And so they agreed to let me resign. And that Sunday, some years ago in Scranton, Pennsylvania, I stood up in front of our congregation and I announced my resignation with an elder standing next to me. It was a very, very, very emotional moment. For many of those people, I was the only pastor they had ever had. 
Scranton was not an easy place to be. There were not many gospel alternatives around. I stood at the front for what seemed like an eternity, having person after person come to me tearfully, hug me. Um, some point, Luella walked home with our four children, and I was there in the building by myself, sort of what a pastor of a small church does. You're, you're the pastor and the janitor. And as I was turning to lock the door at the church, emotionally spent, the oldest man in the congregation was standing in front of me. And he said, Paul, can I talk to you? What I thought was, I don't want to talk to anybody right now. But I knew I needed to respect this man. And so I said, sure, you can talk. And he said these words to me. He said, look, Paul, we know you're immature. I thought, well, that's a good start. <laughs> And then he said these tender, life-transforming words. He said, Paul, where is a church going to get mature pastors if immature pastors run? We haven't asked you to leave. Don't go. You can sense my emotion even today. Tears began to stream down my face. I walked home, and I walked in the house crying, and Luella asked me what was wrong, and... The metaphor that I used for her was, I can't leave. God just nailed my shoes to the porch of that church. I called my elders that afternoon, and I said, okay, I'm an idiot. Can I unresign? <laughs> they said, well, this is not typical. <laughs> but we would love for you to do that. Literally the next Sunday, I got up and unresigned. And I've thought thousands of times about that conversation. One sentence out of the mouth of one tender-hearted man changed my life forever. Without that sentence, there would have been no ministry. Without that sentence, no books would have been written. Without that sentence, this glorious gospel life that I've been able to live wouldn't have happened. None of it would have happened without the words of a tender-hearted man. Brothers and sisters, I thank the Church of Christ seriously underestimates the transformative power of tenderness. And I want you to look back at that passage with me it is, I think, one of the Bible's most powerful portraits of tenderheartedness. Micah is basically a series of complaints of God against his children. His children who have done much of what he commanded them not to do and done little of what he commanded them to do Children that were so rebellious that they would raise high places to false gods that they would worship on the way to the temple. Pretty amazing. Outrageous idolatry. 
That idolatry led to a cultural breakdown, horrible abuse of leadership, wickedness in the streets. And so God's complaining against Israel, righteous complaints. And imagine if you had somebody in your life over a period of a couple weeks that were complaining again and again to you about you, what would you eventually say? You would say, what do you want from me? Tell me what I could do to satisfy you. That's this passage. When, when this question is asked, verse 6, what shall I come before the Lord and how myself and bow myself before God on high? That's the question. Lord, what do you want? What is it that I can do that would satisfy you? What is it that I would do that would silence your complaint? Oh, you've got to understand this. This is the ultimate question that a person could ever ask. This is the question of questions, the question of generations. What can I bring before God that he would accept? That would finally satisfy him. That would finally mean his complaints against me would be silenced. What is it? And you can, you can feel the frustration and exasperation in this passage. If I brought a thousand rams, would that be enough? If I brought rivers of oil, would that be enough? What do you want? It is the summary question of the redemptive story. How can the cleft between God and man be bridged? How can we finally be pleasing in his sight? How can he look on us with favor and not with anger? How, how, how? There could be no more important question. And maybe, if I could propose this this morning, and I'm going to because I'm standing up here, there's not enough gospel exasperation in us. The gospel should exasperate us. It should frustrate us. Because it's totally counterintuitive. So much of human culture is about what you earn by your hard work. And so much of looking down at people that don't have what you have and say, well, they just haven't worked hard enough. Because workers win. But this is a different way. Workers don't win God's favor. Workers don't silence his complaint. It should exasperate you. Because that exasperation is meant to drive you to the end of yourself. I'm going to say this because after the service is over, I get to leave. <laughs> but there's too much pride in the church of Jesus Christ. There's too much pride in theological knowledge. There's too much pride in biblical literacy. 
There's too much pride in ministry involvement. There's too much pride in good parents and trophy children and successful careers. There's too much pride. And that pride is a result of a fundamental identity amnesia. We've forgotten who the Bible says we are. We're hopeless and we're doomed at our best. That's what the Bible says. Because the most important thing, the thing that we were created for, relationship with God, we cannot earn on our own. That's the gospel story. The answer to the question of Micah 6 is deeply humbling. The answer is, what can I bring? The answer is nothing. Nothing. All the riches in the world. All of your best attempts at righteousness. All of your knowledge. All of your successes. Pile it all up. None of it's enough. Listen, theological knowledge, biblical literacy, a good marriage, children who miraculously choose to obey, a good job, all are the result of the amazing blessings of divine grace. Every shred of it. And we will never get to where this passage is leading us if we take credit for what we could have never earned or produced on our own. Hear this. Pride crushes what God has called the church to be. This congregation will never be the transforming presence that it's meant to be if pride lives in its seats. This pastor will never be the pastor that he's meant to be if pride creeps in and begins to rule his heart. Pride crushes God's agenda for his church. I wish I could say to you that I'm a pride-free man, but I can't. I wish I could say that I never take credit for what is only mine by grace, but I can't. This, for us, is spiritual war. And we need to cry out for God's grace. Because the more you know, by God's grace, the more tempting it is to take pride in knowledge. The more you've done, by his grace, the more tempted it is to take pride in doing. And that is the demise of what we've been called to be. No, you cannot You cannot 
satisfy God on your own. You cannot silence his complaint. But there is something he requires of you. Look at, look at if you would, at verse 8. He has told you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? But to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. There is something that God wants from every person in this room. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your heart. If you would take the over 900 passages of Scripture that discuss the heart in Scripture, and you would distill those down to a single definition, here's what the definition would be. The heart is the causal core of your personhood. The heart is the causal core of your personhood. The heart is the steering wheel. The heart is the directional system. That means what controls your heart will then exercise inescapable influence over your words and behavior. Let me say that again. Whatever it is that controls your heart will exercise inescapable influence over your words and behavior. Now, why do I look at these words and say, God wants your heart? Because justice, kindness, and humility are always issues of the heart before they're ever going to be actions of your life. If justice isn't ruling your heart, it will not ever be an action of your life. If kindness doesn't live strong in your heart, you will not be a kind person. Listen, there's a lot of snippy, unkind, know-it-all Christians out there. If you don't believe me, just read Twitter. <laughs> it's shocking how mean we can be in the name of Jesus. Uh, if humility doesn't live in your heart, you won't be a humble servant. You, you just won't. God wants your heart. Now, here's what this means. I find this profoundly convicting, what I'm about to say. God is not satisfied with your theological knowledge. He's not satisfied with your biblical literacy. He's not satisfied with Sunday morning attendance. He's not satisfied with episodic moments of ministry. He's not satisfied with your daily devotions. He's not satisfied with former regu formal, regular Religion's observance. Because he wants the core of you. He wants what makes you tick. He wants your desires. He wants your thoughts. He wants to rule you at the deepest, most intimate of human levels. He wants you. And here's the spiritual war. This is going to surprise some of you. Because I think all these things I mentioned, I love Sunday mornings. It's a feeding feast for me. I love it. I love reading my Bible in the morning. Starting the day, reminding myself of my need for the gospel. 
I love the songs and hymns of the faith. I love all of that stuff. Theology taught me how to think. Now here's the surprising thing I'm going to say. The enemy of your soul will give you your former religion if he can control your heart. That's a scary thought. And that's why it is prophesied that there are many who will say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do this, that, and the other thing? And he'll say, I never knew you. He wants your heart. And he wants a particular condition of heart for his people. Look at this. Do justice, love kindness, and walk humbly with your God. Why those three character qualities? Of all the character qualities in God's great list, why would he choose those three things? I want you to think about that for a moment. Do you have an answer? Why those three? What is it about justice, mercy, or kindness, and humility that would say, of all the things I want for my people, these are the things that I want to live in and rule their hearts. Well, the answer is really quite simple. Once you see it, it's like one of those pictures where there's a hidden picture in a picture. And once you see it, you can't unsee it again because you want to go through the experience of not seeing and seeing it again. And you can't do that anymore because every time you look at it, you see it and it frustrates you. Some of you know what I'm talking about. Once you see this, you can't ever unsee it again. These three words are a summary of the entire redemptive story in three words. God looked on his sin-scarred world with untold evil, untold suffering. And he could not not act. He would rise in justice and right the wrong. Ultimate of what justice does, just the heart of justice is to right wrongs. But our Lord is tender-hearted. And so rather than righting that wrong with condemnation, he would right that wrong through mercy. He would pour out his grace. Now, how would that work? How, how can justice and mercy work together? They seem like opposites. How's that ever going to work? How would God pour out his mercy without offending his justice? And how would he pour out his justice without crushing mercy? How could this happen? Well, here's how it happened. There had to be a righteous son who would in every way 
fulfill God's righteous requirement. There had to be a sacrificial lamb who would bear the ultimate penalty for sin. And so Jesus humbled himself and said, I'll go. I'll be that son. I'll be that lamb. I don't think we have any sense of what it was like for Jesus and this, to leave the splendor of glory and subject himself to the fullness of this earth. If you think that suffering of, the suffering of Jesus began at the cross, suffering of Jesus began when shards of straw pierced his infant skin and he suffered every moment throughout his life. God would right the wrong, but he would do it through the vehicle of kindness, mercy, and humble Jesus was willing to be the son, to be the lamb, and on the cross of Jesus Christ, justice and mercy kiss. There's the gospel. This is a gospel call. What's the call in this passage? You go. You go. You go. You go. You go. And you represent my tenderness on earth. You be tender in the face of wrongs. In the face of loneliness and alienation and abuse and suffering. You be tender. You be kind. Be known for your gentleness. Be known for your kindness. Enough of outrage. Enough of being proud and dismissive and critical and condemning. Be kind. Show mercy where mercy is needed. And you'll never do either one of those things unless you're willing to humble yourself and be a servant. You go, you go, you go, you go and represent me. Here's the plan. God makes his invisible tenderness visible by sending tender people to be tender where tenderness is needed. That's the call of the church of Jesus Christ. I'm just about done. But I want to say two things. Bill, if you're going to be an effective and fruitful pastor, pray that grace would make you a tender soul. And church, if you want to be a transforming presence in your community, may tenderness grow and flourish in your hearts. Without these three words, we would be doomed. Because there was no way for us to meet that righteous requirement. 
represent your Lord where you are. And pray that in your knowledge, in your biblical literacy, in your ministry experience, pride wouldn't grow. Because pride crushes tenderness. Tenderness grows in the soil of a grateful heart. And to the degree that you take credit for what you could have never produced on your own, to that degree, tenderness is crushed. May God help us. Here's the final thing. If we're going to be instruments of that tender grace, we need grace. We need grace. Because tenderness is counterintuitive for sinners. It's not natural for us. May God pour grace down on us so that we may where he has placed us be tools of his tender transforming grace. Let's pray.